to read the passage. It's in Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 17. Now, this is actually the middle of a little speech that the Apostle Paul gave to Peter. But I've already been through that. I'm not going to go through that whole thing again. Um, but this is Paul reminding Peter about the gospel because Peter had begun to live in a way, Paul says, that was not in line with the truth of the gospel. Okay, So we're catching this in the middle, but it's because we needed to focus on these couple ideas this week, and there wasn't time to do it last week. If you missed last week or any other week, I actually podcast all of these messages. So you can just look up RUF and Belmont on iTunes, and you can find the podcast. I actually... Um, even podcast the outline as a PDF along with each episode. So if you want that or your parents are interested or some of your friends, that's how you can get that. Okay, here we're going to read our passage. Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down... I've proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. There's not a long section, but there's basically three ideas that we need to look at here. The first is, what is he talking about here in verse 17 and 18? Um, what he's answering is this question. Does belief in the grace of the gospel promote sin? Now, you might think, well, that sounds kind of weird, but actually, there's a long history of this concern in the church. A lot of history of this. The idea that if you teach people that God's grace is all they need to be beautiful in his sight, how then will you ensure that people don't take advantage of that and just sort of live uh, these hellacious lives and still um, think that they can be accepted by God? It does grace the teaching of the Bible about grace actually promotes sin? That's the question. Maybe you've thought that yourself. Maybe you've heard other people raise this issue. Um, what, one of the interesting places to look at that is over in the, the letter to the Romans that Paul wrote. And there in chapter 5, he talks about, um, by God's grace, you're either in Adam or in Christ. Now, I'm not going to get into that whole argument, but there he talks about how you're united with Adam in your sin, or by grace, God unites you with Jesus, you die in him, you're raised with him, you're beautiful in God's sight because you're in union with Christ. That's, that's Romans chapter 5. And then Romans chapter 6, verse 1 starts this way, what shall we say then? Shall we sin all the more so that grace may increase? And, and here's the thing I would say. Paul expects people to be a little nervous when he talks about grace. Paul expects people to say, Paul, hold on a second. If you go teaching people about grace, what's to stop them from sinning? 
And here's what Paul says. Well, what's to stop them from sinning is the understanding that a relationship with God is a relationship, not just a tit-for-tat legal transaction. What Paul would say is the people that would actually take uh, advantage of this and because of God's grace would then decide that they can live however they want are people who have not obviously been affected by grace. And the reason that you think that you need to kind of back off on the teaching of grace to make sure these people don't live um, in unholy ways is because you think the thing that is making them holy is fear. Like when people are concerned about too much grace leading people to live unholy lives, what it exposes is that they actually think the real reason why people leave holy lives is because of fear. And Paul says, you've got to think, like, the whole thing is actually different and turned upside down. If after you become a Christian, you're shown to still be a sinner, does that mean that the gospel promotes sin? No. It proves that you needed the gospel in the first place. Uh, Let me try a little, sort of my own rendition of these verses. See if this makes a little more sense. This is the way I take Paul's meaning here. If after becoming a Christian... I am still seen to be one who sins. Does that mean that Christ and what he has done for me should get the blame for my sin? Of course not. If after receiving righteousness, remember that means beauty in God's sight, if I've received righteousness by faith and then I try to go back to earning my own righteousness by my works, which is trying to rebuild my righteousness that I destroyed when I trusted wholly in Christ and his righteousness, well, then I just prove again why I needed grace, because I'm still a sinner. But I really am different. I have died to the law. In other words, it no longer controls me by its condemnation. I no longer serve it as a slave trying to earn God's approval. Thus, now, finally, I can live for God. You see, until I died to the law through grace, I could only live for myself, even when it looked like I was living for God. That's what he's saying here. That's what he's saying here. To die to the law, as we get into this next little section, is to quit using it as a principle of life. Now, this gets a little tricky, because the Apostle Paul uses the word law in a number of different ways. And if you're somebody that just likes to kind of look at one word and see all the different places where it gets used in the Bible, and you can do that pretty easily now with things like Bible Gateway or your Bible app, Um, you can just look up a word and see, I just want to see how it gets used. If you do that with the word law in Paul's writings and you're not sensitive to the context, it'll lead to all kinds of crazy ideas. So there's a number of ways. Sometimes the law means the whole Old Testament. Sometimes it means the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it means the principle of of the way you're living. In other words, uh, like I'm a law unto myself. We we use it that way sometimes. Or the idea that um, I have this, this way or this thing that I'm counting on. And that's the sense that it's being used here. Law as a principle of life. Law keeping as the way that I earn the smile of God. Now, unless you grew up as a goody two-shoes, that's probably not like the way you've thought about it. But I know there's some people in here that can relate to that. I know that. That's what he's talking about. 
Um, if, if, you, if you've died to that principle, you see, what he's saying is there's, there's really only two ways to live. You can't live with a little bit of law and a little bit of trusting in grace. Like, if you're trusting in what you're doing, you're not trusting in grace. It may seem to you like, I'm trusting in grace like 90 99%, but then I've got this extra little bit that I'm just covering my basis. And Paul says, then, then you're not living upon grace. Martin Luther said it well when he said that, that um, grace is a living, daring hope in God. It's, it's a casting all of your hope on God. So, now what does Paul mean here when he says it was through the law that he died to the law? That's verse 19. He says, so in verse 18, when he's talking about rebuilding what he tore down, what he's saying is, when I trusted in Christ, I basically tore down, I basically destroyed my previous basis upon which I was living, which is obeying the law and proving to God and everybody else that I was better than them. And in Philippians chapter 3, he talks more about that, if you want to see. All these things that he was trusting in, he says, I now regard them as rubbish. Though in the Greek, it's actually a stronger word than that. And now, that's kind of what he's saying here. Like, I basically destroyed that. I, I'm no longer trusting in that. But, if I rebuild what I have destroyed, in other words, if I fall back into trying to earn God's smile by what I do, well, that doesn't mean that grace caused me to be a sinner. That shows that I'm still in need of grace. Grace is not just how you enter into a relationship with God. It's the way you continue to relate to God because you continue to need grace. And you remember we, when we sang that song, Rock of Ages, not the one that we did here that Sandra McCracken wrote those words, but the Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And you remember I told you that the original name of that hymn was a living and a dying prayer for the holiest believer on earth. Because there are some Christians, um, particularly those um, who look to John Wesley and his teaching, um, and they're kind of in that stream, um, there's a lot of Christians within that tradition that believe you can get to the point where you don't consciously sin anymore. And Augustus Toplady wrote that hymn to say, that's not true. The, the, the prayer I need for living and the prayer I'm going to need on my deathbed, even if I'm the holiest believer on earth, is nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Now, what does it mean that he dies, that through the law he died to the law? Well, it, it, if you look at Romans chapter 7, I'm not going to have you turn there, but this is what he basically says. Like, I was, I was a, a very righteous man. Paul would say he was very scrupulous in his obedience to the Ten Commandments and all the Jewish customs and laws. And he felt pretty good about it. Felt like he was doing a great job. It's kind of like Ben Franklin. You, you ever heard the... You know, where he talks about how he's going to improve his character, and he kind of sets out these things that he wants to work on, and then he finally gets to humility, and he realizes that he's proud of his accomplishments and all the other things, and then now that he's not humble, and it's like this catch-22, and eventually he gives up on the whole thing. That what happens to Paul is he's saying, I'm doing great with obeying the law, and then he actually realizes, do not covet, actually gets at the heart. Like, I can say, I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't committed adultery. 
I haven't slandered anybody. I've never misused God's name. He can say, yes, check, 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 check. And then he gets to do not covet. And he realizes that's an internal issue. Oh, no. What if all of the Ten Commandments are not just external, but internal? So what he says here, it was through the law that I died to the law. Here's what he means. It was through understanding the fullness of the Ten Commandments that they require heart obedience, not just external obedience. It was through understanding what the law really says that I died to the law as a principle for living. And I would just say this. One of the worst kinds of slavery that you can be in is to think that if you just try a little harder, you can live the Christian life. To think that if you just try a little harder, you can actually really please God. That's one of the worst kinds of slaveries you can be in, is to think, you know, I've almost got it. If I could just, you know, wake up a little earlier, spend a little more time in prayer, you know, evangelize a little more frequently, if I could just do this a little bit better, then God would really love me. Like, the only way to get delivered from that bondage is to realize that you can't possibly do enough. And when you realize what the law really says that you need to obey God from the heart, from the moment you're born to the moment you die, without any lacking, without any slacking off, when you realize that that's really what's required, hopefully it brings you to the kind of life-giving despair that the gospel brings. The gospel, you see, comes and says, you can't possibly do this. Collapse upon grace. You can't add grace to your best efforts. One of the, one of the great uh, stories about this, it was an old Scottish Puritan guy named David Dixon. He lived back in the uh, 1600s. If you've ever heard of a thing called the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which has this little question answer maybe you've heard, what is the chief end of man or what is the purpose of mankind? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This guy, David Dixon, was one of the people that was part of this group that wrote that, okay? On his deathbed, he was asked, how is it with your soul? And he said, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I've thrown them together in a heap, and I fled from both of them to Christ, and in him I have peace taken my good deeds and my bad deeds, and I've thrown them together in a heap, and I've fled from both of them to Christ, and in him I have peace. You see, you can't really have peace until you've actually fled from your good deeds. George Whitfield, who was one of the greatest evangelists um, who's ever lived in the modern, modern era, um, God used him in just a tremendous way to bring revival not only to England and to Scotland, to the Bahamas and Bermuda, and to America. One of his most famous sermons was a sermon about how until you repent of your good deeds, you can never have peace with God. That it's your righteousness that keeps you actually from God. That's a pretty radical thing because everybody feels bad when they do bad things. 
Christians, real Christians, are the ones who realize even their good deeds aren't good enough. And they give up trusting in their good deeds. That's what Paul's talking about here. Well, what does it mean when he says, I've been crucified with Christ? Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, let me say, first of all, when the, when the Bible, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, like everybody in, in the Roman world knew what crucifixion was. They did. Because when the Romans crucified people, they did it to be a public spectacle. It was a punishment they reserved for people that were in, uh, guilty of trying to stir up sedition or rebellion against the government in general. They, they made an example of people. And they set these crucified people usually along the road at the entrance to a town. Okay, So everybody knew what crucifixion was like. And here's the thing. Nobody survives crucifixion. So when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, he couldn't have found stronger language to say, I am dead. I've been crucified with Christ. Not, you know, I realized I was going the wrong direction. I had to make a little course change. No. I've been crucified with Christ means I have died. Decisively, definitively. But the question is, what does he mean by I? That's the question, because there are a lot of Christians um, teach something. It goes by various names. Sometimes it's called the higher life movement. Sometimes it's called the victorious Christian life movement. Sometimes it's called Keswick teaching after a Bible conference that happened in a place called Keswick, England, Keswick with a K. There's lots of different names, but you hopefully are going to recognize it when I start to describe it. But there, this Keswick higher life, victorious life movement basically says that I have been crucified and I no longer live. The, the, the good news of the gospel is that I can basically surrender to God and then he just takes over and lives through me. That I no longer live, that there is no longer an I. And that the problem is I keep trying to sort of reassert myself. But really the Christian life means just Letting Christ flow through me. Letting Christ live through me. My will no longer exists. His will takes over. I must decrease so that he can increase. Maybe you've heard that language. You've probably sang songs that sing that and say that because they're all over the place. But let me just say, when John the Baptist says, he, meaning Jesus, must increase and I must decrease, he is not saying that I need to disappear as a person. He's not saying that. I mean, as a matter of fact, it's after he says that, that he stands up to Herod and gets himself in big trouble and gets thrown in jail. He doesn't disappear. What he's saying is the old covenant is now going to give way to the new covenant. He's talking about the old age and the new age. He's not talking about personally I need to disappear and no longer have a will. Because he actually exerts his will in a heroic way and he gets his head cut off for it. And the Bible never criticizes that. See, the problem with the apostle John or the, the John the Baptist is he didn't just let Christ flow through him. He just, you know, 
used his will. No, the Bible never says that. So when people take that little phrase, I must decrease, he must increase. I actually preached this sermon on Sunday. <laughs> and um, when you're a visiting preacher, like you should look at the songs that they've planned for you. Because I didn't look at that. It was a busy week. I had Anna Kate's wedding to prepare for. And so I didn't look at the songs, even though they sent them to me probably on Wednesday. I didn't actually look at the songs that they had planned until Saturday night after the rehearsal dinner. And I look, and literally the response song to the sermon is a song called More of You and Less of Me. And I thought, oh, like, what do I do? Like, I don't want to be a jerk about it, but surely somebody's going to understand that these two things don't go together. And here's the thing. Like, the song sounds very spiritual, and there's a way to understand it that I guess is okay. But what most people think it's about is the problem is that I am an I. Well, look what Paul says in the, in the rest of this verse. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But it doesn't stop there. He says, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Like the eyes don't disappear, do they? So it's important that you actually keep this whole verse together. Paul is not saying that I no longer exist, or the goal of the Christian life is to no longer have an eye. You see, the problem with Christians is not that they're eyes, not that they have their own will and their own identity, their own personality. The problem with Christians is they still have sin. And when Paul talks about how I've been crucified with Christ, that language actually harkens back to Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, he spends a whole chapter explaining what he means. And then there's another place where he talks about the same idea, and I think this is a better one to look at right now because it's shorter and it's more to the point. It's in Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Paul says this, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image of its creator. So there again is this kind of definitive language. I've put off the old, I've put on the new, but notice the new still needs to be renewed. And this is where a lot of mistakes happen. Some people think that we're not really new. They think, okay, Jesus loves me now, but I haven't really changed. It's just he looks at Jesus instead of me. But I'm still the miserable worm that I always was. That's not true. That's not doing justice to this language of crucified with Christ. But neither is it true to say, like uh, one uh, teacher whose books I don't really like that much, Neil Anderson, um, he says that we're now butterflies who forget we're butterflies and sometimes act like worms. Or the way he says it, we're now saints who occasionally sin because we forget that we're saints. That's not doing enough with the language of well, you've put on the new which is being renewed. So what is the I Paul's talking about here and in Romans 6 and in Colossians 3? It's you as a slave to sin. Before Jesus comes into your life, your identity is you are a slave to sin. But when Jesus comes into your life, he doesn't just make you beautiful in God's sight. He also crucifies your old identity as a slave to sin. And you are no longer a slave to sin, yet you're not perfect yet. The new self, the new identity is still a battle. 
still needs to be renewed in the image of its creator. Now, some people really need to hear more clearly that they have been set free from the slavery to sin. Other people really need to know that they're not there yet. And, and you've got to hold on to both of these things. The I no longer live, but Christ lives in me is not talking about Christ replaces me. It's saying that my identity has been crucified. And now I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. The gospel is my reference point because I'm no longer the same person. I'm no longer a slave to sin. Now, here's, here's a couple more things I want to say about this. This kind of language of, you know, Christ dwelling me also usually gets connected to this idea that the way I should live is just to surrender my will, surrender, and let Jesus just flow through me like an empty vessel. And one of the problems with this teaching is it teaches that really, if you understood the secret of the victorious life, the Christian life would be easy. That's one of the most insidious parts of this teaching, is that if you're struggling, this teaching says, well, you just need to get out of the way because the Christian life is easy. Let Jesus just live in your place. And again, it sounds so spiritual, but here's what it's saying. Like, God can't really do anything unless you surrender to him. Like, that's the most man-centered kind of theology I can think of. It's one thing to say you've got to obey all these things, like don't commit adultery and don't murder. It's another thing to say you need to actually surrender. Like, telling somebody they need to surrender their will and just kind of disappear is like telling somebody to go to bed and go to sleep on Christmas Eve. Did your parents ever try and get you to, you know, I mean, my parents would say, you know, you're so anxious you just go to bed early. Like, the sooner you fall asleep on Christmas Eve, the sooner Christmas morning will be here. That doesn't work. That doesn't work. And neither does this surrendering, because it makes you completely self-conscious. Are there still struggles that I have? Well, I must not have surrendered enough. And then you become completely obsessed and introspective about whether you've really surrendered. Let me give you an example of this from another book. I'm not going to tell you who this is by. Though you guys, of course... Uh, actually, I didn't put this in your outline because I knew like you could Google these words and figure out who it's by, which I guess you could do if you want to transcribe the podcast, and there's no way I can stop you. Okay. <laughs> so this is, this is a book by a very popular author. Again, it sounds very spiritual. Let me give you a couple quotes and see if you can hear like what might be the problem with this. A Christian is held captive by anything that hinders the abundant and effective spirit-filled life God planned for him or her. We don't have to wonder if he's willing and able to deliver us from the bonds that are withholding abundant life. Remember, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. He's more than willing. He's ready. The question is whether we are ready to cooperate and prepare the way for our liberator. We don't become victors by conquering the enemy. We become victors through surrender to Christ. And then there's an example of a person who kind of goes through the steps this book is recommending. Um, and this person breaks free of a stronghold, and here's the author's comments. Because she had fully cooperated with God, her eyes were open to mind-binding lies, 
and she sought the divine strength necessary to tear them down. Here's a rule of thumb for the thought life that will be a catalyst to victory in all parts of life. Starve the flesh and feed the spirit. These phrases were pivotal for me, and I hope they will be for you. For every day that the believer practices this principle, victory will be the rule and defeat the exception in her life. And it finally ends with this. My friend, if you have agreed to go the extra mile with God and do whatever freedom requires, he's proud of you. God always loves us lavishly, but imagine God being proud of us and having the privilege of boasting about us. Imagine Christ, your bridegroom, boasting about how beautiful you are because of the time you spent gazing on the beauty of the Lord. I don't know about you, but my heart is leaping at the thought. I am securing God's love for me, even when I'm not very beautiful, but the idea of giving him something to boast about elates me. Now, that sounds so spiritual. But let me tell you, these kind of books, the people that agree with this teaching have amazing victory. Victory is the rule. Defeat is the exception. And the people that question whether this is actually biblical always end up remaining in bondage. That's always a sign of a book that you should run from. Right? Something that promises if you buy this book, read this book, apply my five little steps, then victory will be the rule and defeat the exception. But listen to that insidious kind of theology there. You've got to surrender to God for him to bring deliverance to you. Listen, if you could surrender to God the way that you really should, then you wouldn't even really need Jesus. And of course, there's not much Jesus in this way of teaching. It's all about you surrendering. Christ is willing, but he's unable to work beyond how you can surrender to him. It promises deliverance, but it delivers bondage. And if it doesn't work for you, then it's your fault because you haven't surrendered enough. I don't want you to be caught in that spiritual sounding bad theology. Let's close with this last thing, verse 21. In some ways, it's the central point of the letter. I do not nullify the grace of God, Paul says, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That's a very strong statement. What, what Paul is saying is, if you try to earn God's favor by what you're doing, or by comparing yourself to others and saying, well, at least I'm not like her, then you actually are nullifying the grace of the gospel, and Christ died for no purpose. And that's the heart of what Paul was saying to Peter. Peter, the way you live is preaching a gospel. And if you're preaching a gospel that I'm better than you because I've surrendered more fully or because I've went the extra mile with God so that he can boast about me, if you're thinking that, you're preaching a lie of a gospel. Christianity, Jack Miller, this old pastor who's passed away, used to say, Christianity is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's not people saying, hey, you know, buy my book and I'll teach you how to, how to make bread and never have to hunger again. That's not what it's about. It's about understanding that we need the grace of God every day and we never outgrow that need. We never outgrow that need. And, and don't be upset about that. It's actually what you were made for. 
You were made to be dependent upon God. And that's what he's committed to. I told this little story, um, this little illustration. It's an old preacher illustration. I heard Tim Keller give it, but it actually comes from this guy, Roger Nicole, who was a theology professor that Tim Keller studied under. Um, And it's this idea like, if Christ's death wasn't necessary because you could do enough to earn God's life or to earn God's smile, then, then then you really are like saying that, that Christ didn't really need to die. Like whenever, this is an amazing thing, whenever you f- are trying to sort of say, well, you know, God, you know, I, you owe me because I've sacrificed so much or I've suffered so much and so you owe me. Whenever we fall into that way of thinking, what we really are saying to God is Jesus didn't really need to die. And um, Nicole used to tell this story. If your house was burning down, but your whole family escaped, And I came up to you and I said, let me show you how much I love you. And I ran into your burning house and I was killed. Everybody would be like, okay, that was kind of idiotic. But if your house is burning and they've still got children inside, and you say, let me me go in there, you save the children but you're killed in the process, well, then that's an expression of love. Like if Christ didn't really need to die, for you to be pleasing to God? Well, then the cross is a monstrosity. The cross is only an expression of the love of God if it was absolutely necessary. And it was necessary. And Christ took it willingly. And that's what needs to connect the dots in our life. If all we had to do was surrender and get out of the way and Christ could just live through us, then why does he even need to die? He needs to die because we have sin that needs to be atoned for. Let's pray to Jesus.